This week at Hope Point. Satan wants you to quit. And the primary way he wants you to quit is through guilt. To tell you that you're not good enough, you fell too much, you're not doing it like other people, you're not performing like other people, they read their Bible more, they give more. When Satan tries to harass me with guilt, I, I, I just remember this. God does not want you to derive your confidence from how you feel regarding what you have done for Jesus, but from what you know that Jesus has done for you. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, fellow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's holy word. In 1986, the National Football League instituted system called instant replay reviewing disputed calls and the technology wasn't that sophisticated so it only lasted until 1992 or we got tired of it then the technology returned or increased and so instant replay returned in 1999 and it's been with us ever since whether you like it or not it looks like it's it's here to stay if you're playing in the national football league uh, you really probably want to play on monday night football because that's when the most cameras are used and you're going to get the best benefit of, of the call. Twelve cameras are used during Sunday afternoon's broadcast on average and 41 cameras are used for instant replay for Monday night. So obviously the more cameras that are used, the more angles, the better the officials hopefully of understanding what's happening on the field. Today, we're greatly helped by instant replay because last week we saw a great battle in heaven and today we look at that same play that occurred last week except we're looking at it through instant replay from a completely different angle. Last week we looked at it from the angle of earth, now today we look at it from the angle of heaven and it's the same event just two different perspectives. Let's look at last week's event. A woman was pregnant, cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. An enormous red dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So last week we said there are three characters in the story. A pregnant woman represents Mary, the mother of Christ, and all those who were part of the Messianic community who really helped prepare her success, not just like her mom and dad, but all the people that were part of bringing Christ into the world. Then we saw that the dragon who wanted to kill her child would obviously be Satan and the people that he worked through, like King Herod, who wanted to kill Jesus at his birth. And then the the boy, her son, would be Jesus, would be Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> John's purpose is not to tell us everything that happened in the life of Christ. So he just sort of concludes after all of this drama, well, she gave birth to a son and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. I mean, it's the quickest presentation of the gospel you'll, you'll ever see in one verse, we, this is really what we see. We see the life of Christ in, in verse 5. We see the bookends of his birth on the left, 
his ascension, his return to heaven on the right, and all of the stuff that he did for 33 years in between. And John doesn't mention any of this. You got all the years that he obeyed, the miracles he performed, dying on the cross and rising from the dead. John doesn't mention any of that because he just wants to emphasize the victory that Jesus experienced after he successfully went through every one of those battles. And so he just says he was called up to God. John assumes that you know how difficult everything was between birth and ascension. Jesus Christ relentlessly tempted relentlessly tried, persecuted, rejected every day of his life, if he failed once in 33 years, we would be barred from heaven. Sins would not be forgiven because there would nobody to be sacrificed as a perfect sacrifice. So it's enormous what happened in verse five, but John simply says, he was born victorious and caught up to heaven. He returned. You read verse five, and you go, sound like, ta-da, that's the end. And then John says, no, let's look at that same play again, now with instant replay. Because there was something else happening on the field, which is our study today. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. You may have been a part of a congregation before where you said somebody had been excommunicated from your church. Here, Satan excommunicated from heaven. Now, it's tempting when you read these verses, say, oh, now there's the description of the fall of Satan at the beginning of history. Not so fast. Those verses are mentioned, and if you want to go weird your brain out for the rest of the day, you can, you can read those verses that talk about the rebellion of Satan, the closest thing that we can find out when evil got started in the beginning of time. But that's not what John is talking about in Revelation 12. He's talking about war that was occurring as Jesus was involved in war on the cross, dying and waiting to be raised from the dead. So as that war was going on that we looked at last week, his birth, cross, resurrection, Satan was warring in heaven. It's just from a a different angle. It's the same war. Satan trying to stop the success of Jesus Christ. It's just now we see that same war from a different angle. When I say different angle, I get tickled at myself because in my first church, there was a guy who liked a girl in our church. And so he wrote her a little love note one day and said, hey, Vicki, you're an angle. <laughs> so... <clears throat> Between that little love note and some other idiosyncrasies about him, the first date never happened. <laughs> and so here we have today to tell you we are looking at everything from a different angle, but we also are looking at it from 
the perspective of a mighty angel. Revelation 12 tells us his name. War broke out in heaven, Michael. And his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. One of the things that draws me to God is how utterly fascinating he is. God would have been just as good to create uh, the earth that was nothing but the salt flats. White, salt, unending, no mountains, no valleys, nothing green, no rivers, oceans. But he created beautiful expressions of nature and then he could have done everything with a couple commands, push a couple buttons, but he does a lot of things through humans. And then he does a lot of things through supernatural powers called angels and demons. And that's his choice of the way that he wanted to carry out redemption in all of the world. So we're looking at angels today and how they play into God's purpose. One of the angels I know you're familiar with has occurred in, I guess we're approaching what, a, less than 100 days now to Christmas. And um, we know that day in Luke chapter one when the angel Gabriel was sent from heaven to a podunk town, a nothing town, little village named Nazareth to a poor woman named Mary and the angel's announcement was the Holy Spirit is going to enter your womb and create a pregnancy and you're going to give birth to the Son of God. And God sent that message through an angel. That's how he wanted to do it. We see another angel in the Old Testament, Michael. Maybe we could call him, from what we know, the mightiest of all the angels. Um... In Daniel chapter 10, he's fighting. It's a very mysterious battle, but he's fighting against the king or the ruler of Persia. And we later find out that maybe the ruler of Persia at that time was Satan himself. But Daniel was praying to, him, to, to God for help for 21 days and Michael was trying to get free to come help Daniel. And he says, I couldn't come any sooner. I was fighting against this dark force in Persia. So the Old Testament introduces us to, to Michael. So here in chapter 12, we see what Michael is doing. And what he's doing is he's casting Satan out of heaven. While Jesus is battling on, on earth. So through instant replay, we see these two things happening at the same time. Jesus is winning at the cross. Satan is losing his position in heaven. Now, the war that was occurring in heaven was not like guns and missiles. It was stronger than that. It was a war of words. And if you say, I don't think words are very strong, you go down to the courthouse and watch a judge sentence a defendant you're guilty of, of first-degree homicide, and I sentence you to life in prison. The judge did nothing but say words, and that defendant's life was changed forever. Words are very powerful, especially the words we see in heaven, because they're the words of Satan sent to accuse us. Now, it appears 
from anything that we could gain from this text in Revelation chapter 12, that before Jesus Christ was victorious at the cross, Satan had some sort of place in the courtroom of God where he was allowed to accuse the people of God. Let me tell you something. Nobody loves justice more than God. We like justice when it favors us. God simply likes justice. It's the right thing done all the time. So when Satan comes and says things like, your, un, your people are, you're holy, God. Your people are unholy. You said that you're worthy of glory. Their lives are not glorifying you. You have given them commands to follow. They disobey your commands If you are a righteous judge, your people should be condemned. And if you don't condemn them, it simply means you're not holy, you're not just. God's unafraid of that. He welcomes that because it's true. Everything Satan has said about us, our lives are much different than they should be. And so he accuses us rightly before the Lord. You know, if you read throughout the Bible, I want to take a good bit of time about reading this because I want you to sort of feel, get a context. Today, you may be sitting there and saying, I feel accused. And I don't know who's accusing you, but behind the scenes, probably, it's this voice of Satan. Job chapter one, we see Satan accusing. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. So here again, clear access to heaven. It's interesting what he tells, what Satan tells God about Job. You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Like this guy makes a lot of money. That's what Satan's telling God. And he makes a lot of money, but now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you. So he's accusing Job of only loving the Lord when things are going well. So as you know the story, God allowed Satan to affect his business, Job's business, and his health, and his children's health, their lives actually. Yet Job, in the end of the book, after a little bit of back and forth with God, Job yielded full surrender and worship to God. Now, Job is in the Old Testament to represent Jesus Christ who suffered more injustice than anybody in the world and never complained to God. But he too was accused. Jesus Christ was accused by Satan. So then we see another accusation of Satan. This time, the people of God had disobeyed the Lord. They had been sent off for 70 years to another land. Their city was destroyed and burned and now they come back and they're trying to rebuild and they're being led by a priest named Joshua. Satan has his opinions about the priest. Joshua 3 verses 1 through 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand right side to accuse him. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. So Joshua represents, he definitely represents me. He represents any of you who feel like, can I witness for the Lord? I'm, I'm a priest. I'm assigned to, to take people to God, and yet I'm filthy. I know my heart. So it looks pretty hopeless. 
until this command is given. In verse four, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. So this vision, again, Joshua represents the future coming of Jesus Christ. Joshua's Hebrew name actually is Jesus. So here Joshua is a, is a man who's gone to the cross and at the cross absorbed all of our filthiness and our sin on the cross so that from the cross we might receive all of the righteous fine clothes of Jesus Christ. That's the reason the story was put in the Bible. There's other accusations in the Bible. Satan accuses Peter, uh, tells Jesus that Peter will fall away from you. There's other accusations. But let's just stop here and make this statement. The devil seeks to destroy us day and night through accusation. And our only hope for surviving is to admit where we have failed and to know that Jesus died for every one of those failures. And whenever we admit that we failed and believe that Jesus, who won that battle in Revelation 12, 1 through 6, believe that Jesus won the battle for us, in the moment we admit and believe the power of all accusation is broken. And as soon as Jesus' body began to stir in the grave when he was crucified and life came back into his body in that grave, at that moment, Michael in heaven told Satan, you have to leave. And you can never and are never permitted to make an accusation against the people of God in heaven again. That's what Revelation 12, 7 through 12 is all about. And you could see the joy of heaven after Michael made this announcement. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and of the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. I told you over and over again that heaven is loud. Read Revelation, it's just loud because people are always shouting good news about God. Here, they're shouting that the Messiah, Jesus, has the authority to save men and women from their sin. And the one who can accuse us, who's seen us fall to all of the sins he's brought into our path, this one is silenced forever and is never permitted to enter the presence of God again with an accusation against us because they've all been forgiven. And so he was cast out. Jesus, during his ministry, knowing that he was headed to the cross, saw the beginnings of this war in heaven in which Satan would fall. One day he sent his disciples out, told them, in my name, use my name, in my name, go out and cast out demons and heal the sick. And when they came back to give him a report, they were jacked because of what they had been able to do. And Jesus told them in Luke 10, 18, while you boys were out, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority. So Satan was beginning to lose his grip because Jesus was just a few weeks away from the cross. And then what I love what Jesus told them, 
He said, hey, it's cool that you guys can do miracles and all that, but this is what I want you to really rejoice in. Do not rejoice that the Spirit's demons submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that what I'm about to do for you on the cross is going to so erase every accusation of guilt in your life, you will be able to enter heaven. That's what he was really telling his disciples. What I love most about one last look at what Jesus said is just the really uh, the week before he died, he knew Satan was coming after, coming after him and he knew he was gonna be crucified, nailed to a cross. And this is what he, the last message he told the crowd about his death. John 12, 31 through 33, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. That's Revelation 12 talk. Jesus knew it was coming, about to happen. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So, in case all of this imagery of warfare, and I have a good friend in this church, and I don't know when I'm going to ask him to talk to you about what he's seen, but he's a good friend who's seen more than we've seen. Spent so much of his life in the occult just waiting for the right time for him to share. But in case all of this is too mystical for you, let me just make a few statements about what all of this means for your life. Because what I'm about to say to you is intended to change your life from this day forward. To bring a freedom to your heart and to your joy and to your ministry that you'll never look back and be the same after you process Revelation chapter 12 through a few rewrites. Let's say it like this. Every condemning voice from your past has been conquered by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Satan can no longer accuse you of being unwelcome in the presence of God and unfit in the service of God. You can be as filled today with as much of the Holy Spirit as you want to be filled with. You can pray to God as many hours of the day as you want to pray. You can influence this world for Jesus as often as you want to open your mouth and extend your hands. The court records about your past have been sealed God will not open them and Satan cannot open them. There's no accusation against you. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's nothing preventing you from enjoying the Lord and serving him with great effectiveness. Jesus came to earth, died for sin, returned to heaven, so that you might never again doubt God's ability to remove every sin from your past and to use you in the future that he's writing through you. And that's really what the next verse is about. This is describing the people in the first century all the way up to you today. How do you overcome Satan since we will see next week how he continues to try to slaughter us 
with accusations that have no legal basis. Revelation 12, 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So here in this one verse, which is really why I couldn't wait to get to Revelation 12, the writer gives us a threefold strategy of defeating the accusing voice, the strategies of Satan, while we are serving the Lord on this earth. Number one, triumph over Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Now, when we hear this phrase, blood, triumph by blood, this is not talking about your blood being shed. This is not talking about you suffering. We're going to get to that in a minute where it will talk about that. But this is simply talking about your reliance on the finished, never-to-be-repeated, unalterable act of Jesus Christ shedding blood on Calvary's cross for the removal of your sins. No matter how much you live with inconsistency in your life, and no matter how much you hear and know how imperfect you are, every time Satan says you're not fit to serve, you just go back and say, I know that Christ has triumphed over all the accusations of Satan by his blood, and I can serve. Ultimately, we serve the Lord based on what we know and not how we feel. If you were to ask me this morning, do I feel particularly spiritual? Like ready, remember, like so rock and roll ready to preach. No, no. But I am fully qualified to preach because I stand here not based on how I feel, but what I know that Jesus has done for me. He bled for everything I did last week, the preceding week, last night, yesterday. He bled for it all that I would be equipped to preach for you today. Satan wants you to quit, and the primary way he wants you to quit is through guilt, to tell you that you're not good enough, you've failed too much, you're not doing it like other people, you're not performing like other people, they read their Bible more, they give more, Number one, you have no idea what they're struggling with. But it doesn't matter even if they they did outshine you. And there's a lot of people that outshine me, and I know they outshine me. But that still doesn't matter when Satan tries to harass me with guilt. I, I, I just remember this. God does not want you to derive your confidence from how you feel regarding what you have done for Jesus, but from what you know that Jesus has done for you. Just live in that. Live in that. Can I go on the campus at Upstate this week and witness? Yes, because what he's done for me, not, not what I've done for him and evangelism. Can I, can I say yes to overseas work? Can I go on a short-term mission trip? Can I... Can I, can I take my wife's hand tonight and for the first time ever lead in family prayer or lead the prayer at the table? 
It doesn't matter whether you've ever done it or not. What has Jesus done for you? Listen, throughout my life, I've heard people say to me, well, I don't know why I'm so blessed. I don't know why I got the family I got. I don't know why I got, I got the, the job I did. I guess God just saw something in me. And that, just, that statement just wants to make me vomit. Because the only thing God has ever seen in you that would cause him to be kind to you is he's looking at where are your eyes looking? And if they're looking at the cross, they're looking at his beloved son. And God is pleased with you and you are righteous and you're ready. I mean, just imagine if you flip that around, if that country song is right, that he, he, you know, I don't know what he's done, what I've done right, but that's, I guess, what happens if you have a spell where you you have two months of wrong? Well, if you're going to keep the same hermeneutic, those are two months that he doesn't love you. If it's based on what he sees in you. He sees Christ. He sees you looking at Christ, the second way they overcame Satan. Let's see, I got that wrong. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, and this is number two, by the word of their testimony. These people talked about the blood of the Lamb. They witnessed about the blood of the Lamb. They preached about the blood of the Lamb. They sang songs about the blood of the Lamb because the only way they were going to overcome the work of Satan and culture around them was to use their mouth to talk about the blood of Christ. Hunter leads us in a song. The band leads us in a song from time to time. The song's called The House of the Lord, but it's one of the lines that there's joy in the house of the Lord. We won't be quiet. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. I've told you before, I love to hear you sing it. I just want you to be able, when you're being harassed and accused by Satan, to keep singing it, that none of his accusations, none of your fears will keep you from being quiet. I came across a book this week. It was written by Russell Friedman. The title of it is, We Will Not Be Silent. The White Rose Student Resistance Movement that Defied Adolf Hitler. This movement was started by Austrian-born Hans Scholl and his sister Sophie. They grew up belonging to Hitler's youth, and when they saw where that Nazi movement was going, they rejected all that, and they formed the White Rose Student, and they began passing out documents at the risk of their life to tell Germany what their government was doing. And they refused to be quiet. And I admire the members of the White, white Rose simply because they tried to speak against evil that was destroying their society. But there are more important words even than, than those words that they spoke and they are gospel words. I can show you once again the word of their testimony of what God has done in your life. This is the most powerful words that we can ever speak. The words we speak about the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And now I'll go back to my quote I want to share with you based on that. 
The ultimate answer for the world's pain is not sociological, psychological, political, or military. Each of these systems definitely play a part, but the pain in the world comes from a spiritual problem that can only be fixed with the spiritual solution. The only remedy that can free the world from sorrow, malice, and guilt is the preaching of the cross and resurrection by those who love Jesus more than they love their own life. That's how you change the world. Permanently. That's how you can make permanent change in someone's life. Which brings to me the final way that they won over Satan. They triumphed over him by, number one, the blood of the lamb. Number two, the word of their testimony. They preached, saying the cross. Third, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Let me tell you what you know. You know what this means? They weren't afraid to die. They weren't afraid to lose. They weren't afraid to suffer. They weren't afraid of humiliation. They weren't afraid to not have the American dream And let me tell you why. Because they believed that no matter what they lost, they would be given a hundredfold, a thousandfold, a millionfold of joy later in heaven. And Satan's greatest accusation is when he persuades us, God has nothing for you on the other side, which leads us into the American lifestyle of, well, I better get all of it now. If you want to know why we're so consumed with everything now, it's because we, 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 we are afraid to die, afraid to lose, afraid to give, because we have doubts about the rewards of God on the other side, because Satan accuses God. He's not a good God, and there's nothing better on the, the other side. So what I want to do is I want to close to do close today and just tell you three, four people whose lives were changed by that verse. The first, Helen Rosevere, missionary doctor, worked in the Congo for, from 1953 to 1973. When she moved there, she built a hospital and a clinic And so she wouldn't take up any room there. She lived in a leper colony. While in the Congo, rebels found her, knew she was there to preach Christ, captured her, imprisoned her for five months, beat her, tortured her, abused her. When she was released, she left the Congo only to regroup, only to return to rebuild the hospital and clinic they had burned down. Twice gave everything away because she believed in what God had in store. She was not afraid to die. Next person, Amy Carmichael, missionary who served in India for 55 years. Her primary calling was to take young children, girls who had been forced into prostitution uh, through the local temples, abused by priests, lived their life there for the fantasies of the priest. She helped with their rescue and relocation 
as she cared for those girls for all of her life. When somebody asked her about living in India for 55 years, which was the majority of her life, she said, we profess to be strangers and pilgrims, yet we settle down exactly as if we were quite at home where we are now, determining that we're going to stay here as long as we can. She thought she should go. We planned to stay. On one occasion, Amy received a letter from a young lady that said, what, has the, what is the missionary life like? Amy Carmichael responded, missionary life is simply a chance to die. By that means, she said, it's simply a chance day after day to say, do I have to have this stuff? No. No. Third person, John and Betty Stamm. They were filled with a passion to share the gospel with those who had never heard. They were missionaries to China during the Chinese Civil War. Shortly after they arrived in China and began their work on the mission field, they were arrested. So John and his wife and their three-month-old little baby girl, Helen, paraded through the streets on the way to their execution. And after they died, somebody was going through their daughter's clothing, and they found a note written by John. This is what he wrote. My wife, my baby, and myself are today in the hands of communist bandits. Whether we'll be released or not, no one knows. May God be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. He was not afraid to die. And finally, the last person that lived, Revelation 12, 11 out, was David Livingston, born March 19, 1813, and spent almost 30 years in Africa with missions and exploration to open up more gateways for more missionaries. He was the first European to ever cross Africa from east to west. He's the first European that ever saw Victoria Falls and named the waterfall after his queen, Victoria. He also hated the, the slave trade that he saw in East Africa and did all that he could to end it. A year before he died in 1873 on, on his birthday, his 59th birthday, he wrote these words because he wrote them on every birthday in his journal, the same thing. My birthday, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again dedicate myself wholly to thee. December 4th, 1857, he was addressing uh, the students at Cambridge University and the topic was, how difficult was it leaving behind the benefits of good old England. This was a quote from his talk. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Away with that word. It is emphatically no sacrifice. So rather it is a privilege Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, every now and then. These may cause the soul to sink, but only for a moment. 
All of these are nothing when compared with the glory which will be revealed in us and for us. So let me repeat, for Jesus, I have never made a sacrifice. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.